0: Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. I met tonight's guest at Johnny Heller's Splendiferous Workshop the day before APAC this year. She's a narrator with several hundred books to her name, and she's also an audiobook coach. Karen White, thanks for joining me in the Speakeasy tonight.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It was great to meet you in person first. Often, it happens the other way around. You meet people online and uh, via this kind of media, and then you meet them in person. So
0: absolutely, absolutely unusual. It, it is, and it was a great workshop. I really enjoyed that. Uh, met met and heard from a lot of people who I had either not heard of or from before, and some that I had heard of but had never actually heard speak, like uh, Paul Rubin. Um, that was it was really nice um, hearing from him and from everybody else who was on the panels, and I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed what you had to share with the group.
1: Yeah, it was an inspiring day. It's, it's really, I think that's what I love about APAC Week because we work. In ice, well, I work in isolation. Not all audiobook narrators do.
0: No, but many um, of us do. Yeah,
1: many of us do, and so to get together with colleagues in person and talk about the craft and just catch up, it's a nice, it's a good week. Yeah, exhausting, no. it, but good.
0: <laughs> I would, I would a hundred percent agree with all of that. Exhausting for sure, and uh, definitely good. Uh, had had a lot of great chats with a lot of different people. Some of which I knew, some of which I had never met before and made some new friends, and it, it really was great, and it was also completely exhausting. <laughs> Hopefully you've recovered. I have, although since then I've been finishing this booth, so this is my first day in my brand new vocal booth. Hopefully it sounds all right to everybody listening out there. Um, it's uh, It was quite quite an experience, uh, not having any real construction experience, but oh, I'm, wow. but I'm pretty handy. And so I felt fairly comfortable going in, But, uh, there was, there was a lot to do and it took a lot longer than I anticipated. And I even added a little bit of extra time on, but it, uh, it took a long time, but I think the results will be worth it.
1: Well, it's, it's always with that way in construction. So
0: yeah, yeah. good you're done. Yes, I'm very happy. I'm done. I, I I got towards the end, and I thought, you know, if this doesn't work out, fine. I'll just take an axe to it. I just want to be done with this. I don't even care anymore. <laughs> so fortunately, fortunately, it's it's done. And so far, from the tests that I've run, I think it's it's sounding pretty good. So Karen, what are you drinking tonight?
1: Um, well, I haven't started yet. I'm about to pop open a can.
0: There it is, ah!
1: <laughs> oh, and it's fizzing. Of Highland Brewing, which is in Asheville, North Carolina, and actually I visited this brewery over spring break. Nice. Um, and my my husband and kids and I went up with some of their my kids' friends. I took four teenagers um, up to Asheville, and but only my husband and I visited the brewery. I was gonna say you and took four is...
0: teenagers to a brewery.
1: No, to Asheville. <laughs> they went off and shopped for uh you know vintage clothes and things while we went to the brewery Ah. Uh, but it's a beautiful location up on the side of the mountain and um this i'm drinking the mandarina ipa fresh zesty orange i'm a big ipa fan
0: nice Um, so so is how far oh that's fine uh, you you might hear mine at some point as well. Although hopefully this booth will keep out most of the barking. Um, so how far is Asheville from where you are?
1: Asheville's about six hours from where I am. North oh Johanna's my goodness! Is a very wide state, and um, I'm just pouring it now. That's fine. Um, we live in the southeastern corner in Wilmington, which is on the coast, and Asheville. Isn't even as I mean, there are places further away. Um, but it's up in the mountains toward the northwest corner. So um there's one road that takes you there, but <laughs> it's about a six hour drive.
0: So it's so it's quite a way, so it's not exactly local, but it is in the same state?
1: Yes. Okay, yes. we'll
0: we'll consider that drinking locally then.
1: The grocery store does. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, I am joining you tonight with a, a wee dram of uh, Tullamore Jew. I was I was having a conversation with fellow narrator uh, Jim Siebert recently, and he was talking about the fact that uh, in a speakeasy, he would have an Irish coffee with Tullamore Jew. And, and I thought, well, you know... Um, all right, I'm going to be in the speakeasy today, and uh, I, I like that idea. So I, I don't drink coffee, though, so, um, and I don't really drink cream either. So I think I'm just going to have the, uh, the Irish whiskey without the coffee or the cream, and so I'm just having a, a little dram of Tullamore Jew. No
1: ice or anything either? Nope, just, just neat. How do you spell that?
0: Tullamore Jew is, if I remember correctly, I don't have the bottle in front of me, it's a T-U-L-L-A-M-O-R-E... D-E-W. And I actually, uh, I heard on the Whiskey Topic podcast somebody from Ireland, and I think he may have actually been from the Tullamore Jew Distillery, talk about the three different pronunciations of the final word in their name. He says, you know, in this location, people pronounce it dew, in this location, they pronounce it dew, and in this, in this location, they pronounce it jew, which is how we pronounce it here in Ireland. And I thought, okay, well, I will pronounce it the way that I'm supposed to pronounce it in Ireland because it is an Irish whiskey.
1: It sounds like um, our work.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. You gotta do your research, right?
1: Yeah, boy, <laughs> I have just finished, um, I've just finished a book, and I'm now prepping a book, both of which have very difficult research. Ah. So it's, um, it's sort of the, it's the interesting part of our work, but also the part that sometimes you just want to throw the laptop across the
0: Room. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of a lot of things that are very difficult to find pronunciations for. I I like the uh, the suggestion that I've heard from several people for place names, and that is, well, why don't you call the place? And the first response is often, call the place. Sure, call the Chamber of Commerce, call somebody in the city, call anybody, just you know, a business or something, and say. So, uh, how do you say the name of the place that you, you live again? And some people might think that's kind of odd, but when you explain it to them, most people are real nice and friendly and, uh, they give you a good answer.
1: Yes. That's what we had to do all the time in the olden days. Um, before, <laughs> when I, when I, yeah, when I started, uh, recording audiobooks, there was no Google. Right. Right. So we had a ginormous, um, uh, dictionary, paper, dictionary, you know, an OED basically Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, that would get lugged from studio to studio. This is when I would go and work in a studio. And then we would also, uh, call people.
0: Yeah. And and I still do that.
1: Companies. If I can get a phone number, I love academics because you can usually get their voicemail Mm -hmm. and get, get their name that way. Yeah. But it is funny when you get a person and sometimes I just hang up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like,
1: okay, thanks. Drink. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't want to get into the conversation, but sometimes um sometimes people are really interested in why you want to know.
0: They are, yeah. Yeah. It's all situational. So, yeah. all right. Well, I hope you enjoy the IPA and and I'm going to have my Irish whiskey here. Cheers, Karen.
1: Cheers. Clink.
0: <laughs> so where are you from? I know that uh, we were talking about North Carolina there. Where are you from originally and uh, how how was life growing up there?
1: Um well, I am a, I'm from Virginia, Kentucky, North Carolina. Uh my dad is an academic and we moved around a lot when I was little and then my parents settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is the big blue spot in the middle of the state. <laughs> <laughs> um when I was in middle school, or junior high, and they have, they will never leave. Um, so I mostly grew up there and in other similar college towns. And then when I went away to college, I went to the Northeast and lived uh, in various parts of New York and Massachusetts um, for a while. And then my husband and I moved out to LA. And then um, we. We had our kids there, but we just, neither of us ever really felt at home there. So when we were able to, we moved our kids back here. Mm. And I now work completely from home, and he travels a lot to work. He is records sound in fil- for film and television. Oh. So um, <laughs> he's gone a lot, but he likes coming home to North Carolina. Politically, it's not our favorite place to be right now, but um, it's beautiful, and um, the the schools are surprisingly good for how low we pay our teachers.
0: Well, uh, being in Arizona, I can understand the uh, the political thing. Uh, home, home is what you make it, and so even okay. though. The majority of this state, uh, according to how they normally elect people, don't agree with my politics. That's okay. Most of the people I met here, I meet here in Arizona, are quite nice, even if we uh, even if we disagree on certain things. And um, and you know, people have different ideas, so totally understand yep. that. Yeah. Uh, so where did you go to school when you were in the Northeast? There.
1: Um, I went to undergrad at Cornell, um, up in Ithaca, New York, and then. I worked, after that I went, I lived in New York City for four years doing a lot of various um, theater-connected um, jobs, and then I I ended up doing theater in Massachusetts um, with Shakespeare and Company, which is in western Massachusetts, and then I sort of migrated over to Boston and um, went to grad school at Brandeis, which is just outside of Boston.
0: Wow. So you were in quite a few different places in the, uh, in the Northeast there. When you were doing theater, was it all acting or was it acting and, uh, backstage or was it something else?
1: Well, I was trying very hard to be a director. Um, or I was advised to be a director by a lot of people. So I did, uh, directing internships and, um, directed short plays and things like that, um, in New York and, But I never really loved it. Um, So I worked for an agent. That was an education. Um, And (laughs) I did fundraising for a playwright service organization. Um, That was also, that was an education in a positive way. I learned so much at that place. It's called New Dramatists. It still exists, I'm pretty sure. Um, And um, met so many interesting working playwrights and um actors and directors um so that was sort of my creative home for a couple years when I first moved to New York and then um and then I went up to Shakespeare and Company and and um have not really stopped acting since then although I have uh I did return to directing off and on especially when I was teaching I've directed audiobooks um but i uh, have primarily been an actor since I went to grad school,
0: so what was it i'm I'm interested to hear what what it was about theatrical directing that um didn't you didn't feel like that was a good fit?
1: I think it's a combination of my leadership style, which um is very collaborative. so I loved directing once i got I was in academia for four years i I taught. Um, acting and vocal production and improv um, at Emerson College and at Brandeis, returned after I went to grad school. And at Emerson, I um, part of our teaching voice was that we would create a performance piece with the students so that each student had um, a significant piece of text that they would perform I love doing that. That sort of collaborative. Let's create something from the ground up, and it's all about the students' um, growth. That was fun. Um, uh, later, I I directed plays at at Brandeis. Um, I directed um, Cloud Cloud Nine. Is that right? Yeah, Cloud Nine.
0: Not familiar with that.
1: Uh, it's Carol Churchill, and. Um, Two Gentlemen of Verona and um, an original Commedia dell'Arte that um, the students and myself and um, a friend of mine who who is an amazing clown teacher and has written c- um, Commedia uh, scripts before, she and I worked with the students to create this Commedia dell'Arte called That's Amore. <laughs> <laughs> It was very hard to to figure out how to indicate that that was the way you're supposed to say it, right. just in typeface. But um, I loved doing those because, again, it was all about the students. But I professionally, um, during that time, was hired to direct Hamlet outside of Albany, New York. And I, I think I almost needed to be hospitalized by the end <laughs> of it. Um, to be in charge and to have to manage the design teams and be it's so lonely.
0: Yeah, there's um, there's a lot to that.
1: That yeah, and and to have to the whole all all the final decisions come down to me and the concept, I mean I loved working with the text, but I don't like being just the one person in charge and that sort of ego place, I guess. Mhm. It's to me, and I, that's why I don't mind directing audiobooks too. Is that it's about getting the performance out of the person.
0: Mm-hmm. So that aspect of directing you liked at the time, but it was uh, just the overall overall management that was a bigger problem. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. Makes sense. So, uh, so let's see. Then you moved to uh, L.A. and uh, you were still doing theater in L.A.
1: I did a little bit. I um I produced and and performed in another Commedia dell'arte, and um did a play, another play within a group, and then I did some uh theater with this amazing group called the Virginia Avenue Project, which was modeled after the Fifty Second Street Project in New York that works with at risk kids mm-hmm. in a one on one mentor type situation. And they have a great, a great record of getting kids through high school and onto college in families where nobody has ever, you know, done that before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and keeping kids out of trouble. And it and it really the effect ripples through the whole family. So I did that for a couple of years um, until I had my own kids. And um but then again when I had kids between my husband's schedule, which is pretty demanding because uh, he works on film and television as a crew person, which means generally 14 to 16-hour days, mm. I just couldn't afford to do theater anymore. So I did improv off and on um, because that's less of a time commitment, but that's basically when I got um, I got pregnant around the same time that I started doing audiobooks and that was By
0: design. Mm -hmm. Um, So you got, um, you had kids right about the time you started getting into audiobooks. And was that a good fit because you were able to do that at home?
1: Not then. But um, the relationship was, um, back then I only worked for Books on Tape, which was, um, had opened its offices or opened a studio in L.A., which I helped to um, get started. And as opposed, it was just an easier time management situation. I didn't have to go and audition. Mm-hmm. I would just be offered a book and I could say, okay, I, yep, I can get a sitter for that week and I will do that. Um, same with directing. And I was able to do just like, I don't know, six, six or eight books a year and still feel like I was working, but mostly be a stay-at-home mom sure yeah and then as my kids got older um i did i started proofing from home for the same publisher so i could do that at home and then um about eight years ago when my kids were in late elementary school that's when pro tools made the shift so that you could um do a punch-in edit Mm -hmm. and I expanded my roster to working with more publishers and started working at home. And then that was great. I mean, um, I've been able to completely work around my kids' schedules, and, you know, sometimes you have to deal with the noise that they make.
0: But um, for the most part, it's it's really worked out. That's good. That's good. I I totally hear the noise thing. I don't have kids myself, but I do have a small dog. And there are a lot of times when I... Pretty much think of her as a small child, and sometimes she just makes noise. Yep. Yeah. Can't really can't really get away from it, even in this. You can't new booth. control either of them. No, uh, even in this new booth, I'm pretty sure that her barking is going to bleed through pretty easily. <laughs> so, just have to deal with it when it happens. Fortunately, she's almost—I uh, think she's fifteen and a half now—and so uh, she sleeps most of the day, and that's uh, that's good for me.
1: Yeah, mine aren't there
0: yet. <laughs> They will be. Um, so, so let's see. So, you started doing audio. You you mentioned teaching though. So, when was it that, that the teaching came into into play there?
1: Um, so, I finished grad school, in, and then I went off um, and did theater for about a year, doing various. I did a lot of Shakespeare, um, and I was uh, fortunate to get cast as a. Um, Late twenties, early thirties, young woman, and where, where there's just not a lot of roles. But also, mm-hmm. it was because I figured out early on that that if I volunteered to play male roles, I would get cast more often. Sure. So, um, I've played a lot of men in Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> and then um, it just so happened that my the Brandeis where I went, my got my um, degree was looking for someone to teach part time, so I went back to Boston and I did that. I continued to, and, and I at the same time studied voice with, well, studied to teach voice with Kristen Linkletter, and Ooh, um, I know that who name. was at, yeah, who was at Emerson at the time, and then um, she actually needed somebody to teach, so. Uh, The second semester that I was supposed to just be shadowing her, and I'd studied with her for several years at that point, as well as studied voice intensively in my grad school program. But I ended up teaching um, sort of next to her in in that she would do a class on Monday, I would watch and take notes, and I would teach that class on Tuesday, and then she would teach... She would teach on Wednesday, and I would teach that class on Thursday, and I did that for the whole semester. And then I continued to teach at Emerson for another year or so until Brandeis hired me full-time. But it was great. I I learned a, so much so intensively about teaching voice and about my own voice, and I think that's another thing that led me in, into audiobooks was... Um, knowing enough about my instrument to, sure um to be able to to use it but i loved teaching and i i do miss it sometimes but i kind of feel like that if i had stayed i left teaching to follow my husband to los angeles and then i i taught in los angeles some um uh, doing private work with uh, vocal students and as well as some sort of substitute teaching for link letter teachers. But I think that my teaching self and my mom self are pretty much the same self. Oh, and there, yeah. There's only so much of that available.
0: <laughs> sure, and and you, I, I can imagine that you would probably want to focus that that is available on your own kids. Right, so I have not
1: done... Both full time. I don't, you know, I'm. Some people do it, and I'm sure it's great for them. But for me, my nurturing energy is limited.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds like a great experience though, working with Chris um, and Linkletter, um, learning something to be able to teach it requires uh, a whole lot more um, concentration, I would think, than learning it just to learn it. Of course, you want to concentrate on anything that you're learning for yourself, but to know that you're going to have to impart that to other people you're certainly going to, going to want to have a, a better feel for the material.
1: Yeah. And to her, and I think this is very true, but um, the specific language that you use is very important um, because what you're trying to do is get people to understand things that are happening in their body through imagery um, and, not front of brain ideas.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, um, how you use the language is important to her. So I have to make it my own. So I have to use her language and be accurate, but I also have to make it my own and even more importantly, respond to things that were happening in the moment with my students, um, but luckily there were, she was always available as a resource as well as there was a whole group of us, doing the same thing to about, I don't know, it felt like 800 kids, but. It <laughs> <been> that <many.
0: laughs> well, that's great. That that sounds like a great experience. And then, uh, the full time at, at Brandeis, what, what was that that you were doing?
1: I was teaching, um, intro, basically intro to acting, the initial acting course, um, which involved a lot of vocal physical work as well as basic acting Mm. and I taught intermediate acting which was um pretty intensive scene study work and I included a lot of vocal physical work in that as well and I taught improv and then I also taught I don't know how I got signed on to this but um it's it beca- it was becoming at that time. This was the early mid 90s. Um, a thing to instead of having English 101 be about you know taught by the English department necessarily, it was the first year writing course they wanted to be taught in every department. So um, they needed someone in the theater department to teach this writing course. And we just had to choose a theme and then teach writing just sort of basic composition um, on that theme. And I, I, I'd I, never taught writing in my life, but <laughs> they did have, they had a lab where they could go and um, you know, get sort of basics of grammar and all the rules that were important. My job was to get them Thinking critically and and analytically, and then to communicate that. So, my theme was the senses, and I used um, texts from um, all over, you know, as well as paintings and music. And then I would use improv techniques, all these sorts of things to really shake these kids up and and to get them thinking um, about how they take things in through their senses and then to express that. It was fun. Um, And then I left.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that all sounds great though. It definitely sounds like uh, a good foundation uh, with all of the acting stuff and especially all the the vocal um, stuff uh, when it comes to getting into audiobooks later. So then you moved to LA and then you um, moved uh, away from LA. uh, And having grown up in LA, I can certainly see both sides of that coin. Um and by that time you were well on your way to uh, working in audiobooks pretty much all the time.
1: Yes. Um by the time we moved, my kids were independent enough that I I I, I kinda say that I work sort of five sixths time or seven eighths time. Mm-hmm. I really I really resist working full-time
2: <laughs> as much as
1: I can. I can understand um, that. But you know how it is. Sometimes you're working seven days a week, and then you're like, okay, I'm, I need a week off because yep. I'm just working too much. And and no books come in, so that's what you get. Yeah. Um, pretty much I do audiobooks full-time.
0: So have you ever uh, ventured out and done any other types of voiceover work?
1: No. I. Um, back in Boston, I did do some radio plays.
0: Um, oh, but that was, was fun.
1: Oh, it was so much fun. And I'm, it was a short-lived um, company, but the work that was done while it was there was, was great. Um, it was called The Radio Play. And um, when I'd moved to L.A., it was so hard to break into voiceover work. Um, the one thing I did manage to do from L.A. was... A, um, the Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina interactive telephone system. And this was a job that I did for three years. And I would go in every couple months and record more new stuff. And, um, and was just, I happened to be that they were looking for a native speaker. And I knew the people who were creating this Uh. interactive program i was I was thinking um, that was
0: quite a coincidence that you were doing something for North Carolina, but it wasn't a coincidence yeah. at all
1: <laughs> um so th- that was good but i it just was never to me worth um the amount of effort it would take to break through mm-hmm. to do it. I think I'm better at the long form anyway
0: yeah yeah well that, that's good, and it certainly at that point you were uh getting a good, good foothold in there. So do you have a, a specialty or a niche within the audiobooks that you do, or are you pretty happy narrating in just about any genre?
1: Yeah, I, I will do pretty much anything. Um, I try to avoid doing things that are really violent. Um, although it's hard to, cause you never know exactly what you're going to get, but mm-hmm. that stuff gives me nightmares. Um, I tend to get a lot of nonfiction I think I think there's just not as many women who either are interested in it or do it successfully I don't know but i I get a lot of that and I have to every once in a while say hey can I please do some fiction
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to have a little fun I, too
1: i I love this chemi- chemistry book but uh um, but I like doing nonfiction too. I mean, I, I learn things and, um, some of the nonfiction I've done has been some of the most rewarding and best reviewed things that I've done. So, mm-hmm. um, I like the balance. I like, you know, sometimes you're, it's all about just creating characters and living this emotional journey of them. And sometimes it's just about making that sentence clear and making sure that, the listener, you know, is
0: excited to hear about it. Exactly. That they're engaged. I, I like the balance too. I'm, I consider myself fortunate. I've got, uh, you know, I don't have several hundred books on my name, under my name, but, uh, for the books that I have done, I'm about half and half nonfiction and fiction. And I like that balance because I love, you know, learning stuff and reading more in an area that I'm interested in and hearing a slightly different perspective on it. And I also like, making characters come to life. So uh, yeah. I, I think it's great. I, I totally understand the, the balance. So you don't like like violent things. I assume you haven't done a whole lot of horror. Um, is there anything that you that you really won't narrate? If somebody came to you, whether it's a big publisher or an indie author, and they said, I'd like you to narrate this, and then you take a look at it and you say, I just, I won't do that. Is, is there anything that falls into that category?
1: Um, you know, it hasn't really happened. Um. But I do a lot of publishers these days will have you fill out a form and put those kinds of things on there so
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, I really would not do anything that that puts you know egregious or un what's the word um unnecessary it's not the word but uh, violence mm-hmm. against you know victims uh, out there mm-hmm. um. Un- unconsensual, non-consensual sex, you know, and it's hard when you, I have done some works by political authors that are complete opposite of me and, um, as well as some things that have been sensationalized in the, uh, in the news and those I have just done under a different name
0: mm-hmm. because
1: I just don't want to be searchable connected to them. Right. And it's hard. You can balance, one, I'm putting this stuff out into the world. I'm helping to get it out there. But on the other hand, kind of like you said, it's good to learn about different perspectives from your own.
0: Yeah, yeah, that can be. But I, I completely understand not wanting to have your name on something. There's there's something a little bit different about nonfiction. Uh, and before I, before I go into that, I will say that I've heard the non-consensual sex is a very common answer to that question. There are a lot of people, men and women, who say, nope, won't do it. Uh, I don't know how much of that there is out there where people are looking for narrators, but uh, one thing that I've learned in this business is that there is some book out there with just about anything you can possibly imagine that somebody is going to want to make into an audiobook. So I'm sure that it it does exist. But uh, that is a that is a big one. But uh, in terms of the of the politics, there's there's something a little bit different about nonfiction than fiction. Having your name on a fiction book, well, or or being in a play, people know that you're acting on stage and you aren't a serial killer. But when you're doing nonfiction, there is something about it that, you know, people can very easily think, oh, this person's narrating this. This is what this person who I'm listening to actually thinks. And and so I can absolutely see doing something like that under a different name.
1: Yeah. The funny thing is, is that I have done, done, you know, a good amount of romance that is pretty explicit. I call it rated R. Mm -hmm. I don't For whatever reason, I just don't do much or haven't done, I think I've done one thing that I would call erotica, but it was very beautifully written. So, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, but I, you know, explicit sex and I have occasionally done work for uh, Christian audio or other Christian publishers. And I offered because that came second. I said, you know, if you want, I'll I'll do this under a pseudonym in case you're worried about that. And, And the Christian audio guy said, you know, our our
0: listeners know that you're an actor. <laughs> that's good to hear. I thought that was good. Yeah, that's that's very good to hear. So, uh, so what's your what's your home situation like at this point? Uh, sounds like you do most of your recording at home. Uh, and are your kids still at home?
1: Um, mostly, yeah. I have one who just graduated high school, so she's still here now, but she'll be gone in the fall. And then I have a 15 year old. Um, and she she mostly stays in her room or is
0: off <laughs> with her friends. <laughs> so. That's teenagers for you. At <laughs> or least she
1: needs me to drive her somewhere. At, at least that's um, what I
0: hear. That's that's those yeah. kids for you. Yeah, I'll be in my room. Uh, so so it doesn't sound like the kids are that big of a deal. What about uh, your environment? You know, traffic or anything else? Do you do you have many well, problems recording at home?
1: We just moved houses, which is. So I'm I actually just finished recording my first book in this new setup and um right now I'm I'm in my ancient whisper room which I bought 10 years ago hmm? and I'm its third owner. Oh wow. Um it feels like home to me but in the for the past 5 years I was recording in a built-in booth that my husband built for me. And the great thing about that booth was it, it sounded great, and it was super quiet. Really, only massive thunder and gi- giant uh, army helicopters
2: mm, yeah. <laughs>
1: would get through that booth. Um, and people slamming doors downstairs. The bad thing about that booth was it was in the attic.
0: Oh. So it got hot. It,
1: it had airflow, but it was never enough. Yeah. And so the whisper room is not quite as quiet, and I'm but I'm still discovering somebody in this neighborhood has a really loud car,
2: <laughs>
1: but only heard him once or her. Um, my dogs, when someone comes to the front door, but that's kind of good because then you know sure. someone's at the front door. Right. Um, and again, the slamming of doors. That's pretty much the only thing that so far, knock on wood, is getting
0: through. Well, that's good. That's good. It sounds like it's a good environment overall, especially when you have one kid out of the house and a couple, couple more years and you'll have another one out of the house. Yeah. It'll be dead quiet then. Yeah. Well, the dogs. <laughs> yeah. I was well, worried because
1: we have a newish cat as well, and he he at first just thought the whisper room was a thing for him to climb. Ah. And hang out on top of, so I had to knock him off of that a couple times
0: with a broom. I'm sure that inside you would be able to hear little little paw prints up 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 above.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, but that
0: he he seems deterred. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So when did you start uh, coaching audiobook narration?
1: Well, I um, have mostly done panels, uh, like, uh, at Johnny's and, and I've been on panels at APAC every year, but this one for the past five or six years. Oh, wow. Um, and, but when I first started doing audiobooks, books, um, actually started as an editor and, um, then I worked at Books on Tape doing everything, including narrating, but I did a lot of directing and, um, for my first sort of five or six, seven years in audiobooks, um, I did a lot of directing of brand new narrators, because when um, Dan Musselman opened the Books on Tape studios in LA, um, there really hadn't, <laughs> the reason why I was had started as an editor was that there hadn't been uh, audiobook narration opportunities for your regular actor there had dove audio uh was in beverly hills they worked almost exclusively with celebrities doing abridged audiobooks
2: Mm.
1: and previously to opening opening the studio books on tape worked with um Mm. narrators in quote-unquote home studios but they were you know whatever people built and put together on their own mm-hmm. and they weren't as sophisticated of setups as we have today. Right. Um so pretty much everyone we brought in um to books on tape and a lot of them were my friends from the Virginia Avenue project um and then their friends and whoever else we could scrape up had not done an audiobook before. So that directing involved a lot of coaching.
0: Ah, uh, I see. So that was how you got into coaching in one yeah. way or another,
1: yeah. And it's not work that I really seek out. I like I love doing things like Johnny's, where we're um, we're sharing uh, our different approaches and um and helping people work through things. But I have worked with a few people um via Skype because i'm in I'm in North Carolina, and they're literally, Two or three narrators in North Carolina that I know of. Um, maybe there are more, but um, so everything I would have to do is is by Skype. And I, I you know, I I think it's um, what I like to do is help people just find. I think one of the biggest uh, challenges people have is with the narrative. A lot of a lot of people come into audiobook narration having done. Uh, maybe animation or other voiceover forms or whatever kind of acting and, and doing the dialogue, it's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. We know how to do that. We're trained to do that. But making fictional narrative and nonfiction narrative active is trickier. And so that's something that I'm really interested in, in helping people with. And that was the thing that I had to sort of work on a lot as a director. Mm-hmm. I've also directed authors a couple of times, and that is a huge challenge.
0: (laughs) I'm sure, yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, Because they just, they don't have the instrument, you know. Um, They don't have the trained instrument. So it's really getting the best you can.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So it's not something that you focus on, but it is something that if somebody were to hear you, whether at a workshop or here on this podcast or someplace else, and they were to somehow connect with what you were saying for whatever reason, it is something that you do occasionally. Yes. Yeah. That's great. Well put. That's great. Um, and it sounds like you focus mostly on the, the narrative aspect. I actually, one one of the things that I really like about the workshops like Johnny Heller's Splendiferous Workshop, and I wish I were going to the, the New England retreat that's coming up in Rhode Island. Um, but the thing that I like about those is actually hearing, different perspectives and sometimes very different perspectives. I thought that it was <laughs> it was great at Johnny's workshop um, before APAC. Um, Paul Allen Rubin has some very specific ideas and other people had very different ideas. And listening to the different people, at first you might think, well, they're absolute 180 degrees polar opposite on what they're saying. and And yet, when they actually went into it a little bit more deeply, it was clear that you're not you're not 180 degrees different it's just a matter of the words that you're using to get your point across and how you're approaching a specific thing but the fact is that there's some similarity there and yet there are still differences and it's actually kind of nice to hear that i i don't think that for most questions not just audiobook related but for most questions i don't think there is just one answer sometimes and it's uh, and especially when you get into creative arts and performance, uh, I think that there are a lot of different ways to attack something where you can end up with an outstanding result, even though you've done it differently than somebody else might have.
1: Yeah, it was um, when I was, was teaching, um, especially Christian Kristen Linkletter's work, but then I also um, have taught yoga, um, I always struggled as a student of both of those things with, uh, visualizations, my, my primary, um, imaginative, um, self does not work through, through the visual. It is, uh, kinetic or experience experiential. Like mm-hmm. I feel it in my body. And it was huge for me when I was teaching Kristen's work is when I figured out different people learn through different senses. Mm -hmm. Some people are very oral. I'm also more oral than visual. Um, and some people are, um, you know, feel things in their bodies. Um, some people by touch, I guess, taste, probably not so much, but, um, I mean, there are obviously people who are, do have a stronger taste and smell.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And it was really a huge realization for me to then start translating Kristen's language um, and adapting it for people who may be more like me, who Mm -hmm. don't see themselves on the beach when they're trying to relax, but instead feel their um, muscles from the inside or or whatever it is. but then to go back to what you're saying about uh, the Paul Rubin um, language versus the language I-, I wanted people to hear was there's always been a difference. And I think most trained actors understand that directors are speaking in result language. Paul's a director.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, there was a, actually a panel at APAC later in the week where another very highly respected as Paul Rubin is director used the exact same language, which is they want to hear the emotion.
2: Mm, But
1: most actors who've gone through any sort of serious training program understand that you cannot play emotion. So we are taught to, to translate that result into a process. But my concern is that of, all the acting work, I think more people go into audiobooks from other places and may not be a classically trained actor. Mm -hmm. So they may not understand that. And if they are trying to play fear or play love or play anger, it's going to come across as fake. Mm -hmm. Because the only way you can get to the re to real emotion is to play an action and to have an obstacle that you have to work through in order to play that action or change tact. I mean, all these things that actors know. Right. It was really important to me at that that day because I've, I've struggled with this for years, um, hearing directors use that kind of language. And I was just like, okay, I can't, I can't listen to it again without making <laughs> sure people understand that you got to think about it in actor language. Yeah. Which is process.
0: Yeah. It it was, it was just very interesting to me. It was, uh, I know that you and Paul were at odds on a couple of things, or seemingly at odds at the very least. And then, um, Joel, when Joel Frumkin was, was speaking, there was some uh, it seemed like there were some disagreements there as well, and yet the more people spoke, the more it was clear. Uh, everybody's looking for the same goal. It's just we're talking about different ways to get there. So it was, uh, right, was really Right, and different
1: things work for different people, so yep. that is useful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned just a second ago teaching yoga, and um, that, that makes me think of something else that happened on that day. We we took a break in the afternoon and, uh, you, you sort of led everybody in a stretch and then you, you started going into what I thought of immediately as basically a guided meditation. And, um, so I was wondering what part yoga or meditation or anything along those lines has played in your work as a narrator or a coach or anything like that.
1: Um, well, everything, honestly, uh, since sometime in the time after I finished grad school and when I was working as a professional actor, although there's always things you can work on as an actor in, in understanding your craft, the biggest thing for me that I knew I needed to work on was being present. So then I started to write off all my yoga classes
2: as acting
1: <laughs> That's classes. great. That's great. <laughs> um, which... I think is is definitely uh, uh, legit. Yep.
2: Um,
1: but something about audiobooks, maybe because it's it's you're so still and all by yourself, there's no other actors to play off of, to me requires an even higher level of skill um, in the in, in being able to stay present. Um, when I was directing um a lot of audiobooks, I could hear, I'd be following along with the text and the person would be saying all the words in the right order, but they were just not there. Mm-hmm. And you could hear it. They were not there. They'd gone off and they were thinking about something else, but they were reading on the words. And I started to notice when I would do that too. And, you know, you can kind of get away with that a little bit, but if you're not present, then the listener is going to fade away too mm-hmm. as well as you start getting into repetitive um cadences and, and you're not really doing anything anymore right um so that's a muscle that i very consciously um exercise now so every i it, it has taken me years to get to this point through literally um two years of, of of yoga, I mean, many years of taking yoga classes, but then two yoga teacher trainings and teaching yoga. Um, but I am finally it's been over a year now that I have a daily yoga practice and meditation practice. Wow, that's and writing great. practice. Um, you know, things happen, and there are days when things go out the window, but sure. um, i I get most of a walk, a yoga practice. A meditation and then writing done every single day. It helps that my children drive themselves to school um, (laughs) and fix their own breakfast and get themselves out the door. Right. Uh, It's invaluable because I find that those, I'm so much better at staying present with the text.
0: Yeah, that that makes perfect sense to me, having done a little bit of um, mindfulness meditation training over the years, uh, not currently practicing, but, uh, I keep meaning to get back to it. Um, it's one of those things where it's really easy to say, Oh, once I get this done, I'll go ahead and have more time. And, Oh, but then, so once I get that done, you know, then I'll have, and that goes on for a long time. And, and I'm just, I think I'm just about at the point of realizing, you know, that's a bunch of crap. It's either you make time for it or you don't. And, um, so I, hopefully I'm, I'll be getting to that point soon because I have found the same thing in terms of staying present. Um, it's much easier to be present in whatever you're doing if you are training yourself to be present all the time.
1: Well, uh, the tips I will give on that is that, and this came from my um, my yoga teacher mentor, is that it's actually more valuable to have a practice that is very short that you do every day than to do, you know, a hour and a half yoga class once or twice a week. I believe that a hundred percent. Or a meditation workshop once a year. Um, so my yoga practice takes 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And um, my meditation is 15 minutes. And shout out to Headspace. That is the app mm-hmm. that I use. And even one of my dogs seems calmed by Andy's voice on headspace that's great (laughs) he comes like she will follow me around until I go sit down and meditate and then she just inevitably just sighs and relaxes into the floor
0: that's fantastic (laughs)
1: he's so much better than I am um and I don't let myself eat until I can I have done those things
0: Wow, I would have died a long time ago if that was what I was doing. Yeah, but uh, it's
1: very quick. Yeah, you know. no,
0: I understand. I listened to uh, Dan Harris's Ten Percent Happier podcast. Um, haven't listened in quite a few weeks now, but uh, he he basically preaches the same thing, which is that you know just uh, five minutes, ten minutes a day, even even one minute, if you are. You know, making the effort to do that. Uh, one minute isn't a whole lot of time, but you can do these little micro um, mindfulness sessions, and keeping at it will make it much easier to stick with it. Yep. Yeah. So, fully believe that. So, uh, so, what words of wisdom do you have for aspiring narrators out there? There are a few that listen to this podcast, and uh, what what do you think are some? Uh, two or three pieces of advice that you would give to just about anybody that is getting going in this business or maybe who's been at it for a while?
1: Well, this seems obvious, but I think it doesn't always occur to a lot of people. But um, listen to a lot of audiobooks mm-hmm. um, and, you know, get them from the library. And But listen, I think, um, listen uh, proactively so that you're, you know, Go to Audiophile Magazine and find out who the golden voices are. You know, find out um, people who seem similar to you, but also people who are not similar uh, to you. Um, When I was first getting started, I did a lot of that. And uh, George Guidal, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, um, was a huge inspiration to me. That man is a storyteller. He is so, so amazing. And,
0: um, I just saw his his name recently. I don't remember what it was, what it was on, but I just saw his name recently and I thought that too. How do you pronounce that name? But, um, that's really good to hear. I will go ahead and check something out by him.
1: I I think he's narrated like a thousand audiobooks or something like that. Um, he's very good. I, uh, uh, John Irving's, a woman for one year i think that was the name of it. it was the title that really just made me think oh if i could ever be anywhere near this good huh. you know um so listen and um i think make sure that you the other thing i do before i i record is is warm up and um I used to be a little bit more, when I had to travel, I would sort of do it in my car, which is just, that's not as ridiculous. I mean, you really have to warm up. And and if you don't know how to warm up, I think you need to learn about your voice. So um, taking, finding a good voice teacher and um, that you can trust and learning about your voice is is very important because you've got to be able to take care of it. Um, that's one reason why I don't like to work too much. Is that I don't like to uh, tire my voice out, and
0: oh, yeah. and I know what I'm doing. You yeah. know, and and that that can happen more easily than a lot of people think.
1: Yeah, um, and then I I think the other thing is that is a thing that that you really have to learn that a lot of people don't. A lot of people who start who get into it think I love to read, and and so this is perfect for me, but what they don't realize is that rarely do you get to record the books that you would choose to read. Right. (laughs) So you got to figure out a way to love the books anyway.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: And not judge them. That's a big thing that happens with a lot of people with romance. Um, uh, romance or uh nonfiction. Huh. You know, it's not literary fiction or it's not, you know, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning material, I'll just phone it in. Well, you have to work as harder than anything to make make it good.
2: Exactly. When it's
1: it's not something that is written perhaps as wonderfully. But I'll also argue that many of the romances that I read are some of the best writing that I read. So you can't be judgy about genres.
0: Yeah, and uh, I know that that's certainly true for romance, probably some in other genres as well. But if you do phone it in, oh, you're going to get hammered because there are, especially in the romance community, um, there are fans who are are expecting performances that are not phoned in. And when that's what they get, they're really upset. (laughs) Yep. Yep, and for good reason. Yeah, you know. Yeah, people are paying good money for this, generally speaking. So, well, that's great, Karen. Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, I only had to go into my booth, which is in my
0: house. <laughs> well, that's that's great. Uh, how, the
1: beauty how, of Skype.
0: How was the uh, Mandarin IPA?
1: It was good.
0: That's good. I'm good. I'm glad to hear it. That's the second second fruity beer I've I've had in the Speakeasy in uh, a couple of weeks now.
1: Well, you know, the, it's summer. So yeah, maybe that's
0: maybe that's what it is. The other one was and, a blueberry ale.
1: Oh, that sounds disgusting.
0: <laughs> well, I can tell you that my Irish whiskey was good, and it's almost gone.
1: Ah, very so, nice.
0: Uh, yeah, so... Uh, well, so this, if I
1: can, speaking of romance, if I can put in one little plug... Sure, yeah. Um, uh, the other thing that I've been actually working on is writing, and... Um, I am working on a romance series, but I I have a um, short story in uh, Blunder Woman Productions' Vintage Love Stories. That oh, that's will be great! Coming out later this year, and um, I'm having to work under the pen name K.E. White because a popular writer is using my name
0: already. Ah. Um, Now, now do you know if that writer is actually named Karen White or if that is actually a pen name of hers? It's
1: her married name.
0: Ah, okay.
1: So she took her husband's last name, White. I should have taken my husband's last name, but I didn't. So I'm stuck (laughs) with my name. So I'm K.E. White. Um but it's vintage love stories and, um, another narrator, Cassandra Campbell also has a story that she's written and it's going to be an audio with some fabulous people. I'm not recording my own story. I was, I was going to
0: ask, uh, what's your plan for when you have a full length novel done?
1: Well, my plan right now is I think I'm going to record the female half of the first one, but it, the series is, um, about, uh, separate couples in each book, and they are connected through a Boston, uh, theater company. Ah. Um, so I think I'm going to have different pairs read, read each one that I think that is the way that I want to go.
0: Got it. So if there are any male narrators out there who might want to get involved in this somehow, uh, how should they go about doing that? Just asking for a friend.
1: Um <laughs> they can contact me at um Karen at Karen dot com.
0: Okay. So is that your contact? Is that where people can contact yeah. you if they want to talk about that or anything else? Yeah. Okay, great. And uh you have a uh what was the, the domain on that? Karen dot com? Yep. Okay, so people can just go to your website as well. Yep. All right. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. I really appreciate the chat. Glad I got a chance to meet you at uh, Johnny's workshop and hear everything that you had to hear all of the wisdom that you had to impart on all of us that were up there in the, uh, up there in the peanut gallery.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me.
0: You are very welcome. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Karen White for stopping in. I'm really happy that I had a chance to meet her in person at Johnny Heller's Splendiferous Workshop just before APAC a few weeks ago, and I hope our little chat here in the speakeasy gave you a good sense of why I enjoyed hearing her insights about audiobook narration at the workshop. You can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter and where I'm also posting episodes of the Audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. You donate per episode, but don't worry about breaking the bank if I decide to publish an episode a day. You can set a monthly maximum, and you can cancel at any time. Any financial support is greatly appreciated and helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers!